us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And uh, the Bible memory work is uh, from the Catechism uh, to address to husbands and wives. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Colossians 3.19 and wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, Ephesians 5, 22. Right, let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's evening prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day, and I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong, and graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right. Let the children go off to Sunday school. And I think we'll we'll still aim, maybe we start a little bit later today, but we'll still aim to end around 5.15, if that's good with everybody. Just uh, before <laughs> All right. Uh, so we're in the Gospel of Mark, and how come my bookmark's in the wrong spot? That's annoying. Okay. We left off uh, chapter 3, verse 31. It's where we left off. And we had already kind of discussed this situation with uh, Jesus' family. Um, where he, uh, it's, it started off, let's see, earlier in chapter 3, where, where was that? Or maybe I'm thinking, no, that's right. Let's see here. 
Wasn't there, there was something about his family earlier on in chapter 3, wasn't there? Yeah, that's where we are. I thought I thought we had talked started talking about his family before that. Uh, maybe I'm imagining things. Let's see here. Huh? Maybe not. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I'm imagining things or something. All right, so verse uh, 31, Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother and or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. Okay, so uh, the point that he's making here is that the household of faith, right? And this is language that that Paul uses, um, is that to to do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith, and that the church, right, and specifically the invisible church, right, the the church of of believers, right. So um, we make this distinction sometimes between the visible and invisible church. The visible church is, is like a local congregation, right? That's the church that's manifest where Christ distributes his gifts like the Lord's Supper and baptism. The invisible church is all believers of all time everywhere, right? The invisible church is a household, right? A household of faith that all who have faith in Christ are a family, right? So we have, this is why you often use the term like brother and sister in Christ, Right, and the point that he's making here is that 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 family of faith, the brothers and sisters of of Christ, those who have faith in Christ for the salvation of their sins, that family is actually, in a way, uh, its bonds are stronger than a biological family, right? And that this can be kind of a hard pill to swallow, right? And Jesus preaches about this fairly often. Um, or at least multiple times, that um, there is a there, there's definitely a goodness to the family, right? To a biological family, and um, if you go back, you know, to Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother. There's definitely um, a importance to the family from a biblical perspective, right? Children are a blessing from the Lord. All all of these things, but. Jesus also is very clear that the gospel can divide families, right? And uh, Jesus himself says that there will be a time when uh, mother is divided against daughter-in-law, right? When when brother is divided against brother. And that in times of persecution especially, and in times of um, maybe not even persecution, but uh, in times when there are such visible distinctions between family members that the family of the gospel, the family of faith, uh, takes a stronger bond. And so what what does that look like? What what exactly are we talking about? Well, here we have the situation where 
um, Jesus' family. I know we talked about this. I don't know where, where we talked about it at, but um, where Jesus' family is, is somewhat embarrassed by him, and, and they don't want him becoming this kind of famous uh, person that he's becoming and known for specifically being united uh, against from the Herodians and the Pharisees, um, where the, his family is worried about him becoming what he is becoming. And we, I got to find these verses, but uh, 21. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. But when his own people heard about this, uh, they went out to lay hold of him for they said he is out of his mind. Thank you. Yeah, the um, his family was trying to pull him back in, right? And um, as we learn here, the, the the family that was here uh, were his brothers and his mother. And you see this. We talked about this. You see this trajectory in Mary's life, where um, at first Mary in in Luke two at Jesus' birth is this, um, you know, virgin who obeys the voice of the Lord and who listens to the angel. And who stores up all these things in her mind, and she sings the Magnificat, right? But then you get to the wedding at Cana, Jesus' first miracle. This is in John 2. And um, she has a certain kind of attitude that is is interesting, right? She she just tells Jesus, and she assumes Jesus is going to fix the social situation, right? The, the wines run out, and she says, hey, Jesus, why don't you just take care of this? And he says, hey, listen, woman, my hour has not yet come, right? Because uh, he's focused on the, his cross, right? That's what Jesus is always focused on. And then here we see that um, there's even a divi- somewhat of a division in the household between Jesus' mother and Jesus. But then, of course, at the end, um, in John's gospel, at Jesus' crucifixion, uh, seemingly Joseph has passed away at this point. Uh, Mary is shown to be faithful again. And he gives John and Mary to one another to be uh, mother and son for when Jesus ascends into heaven. So there's this kind of interesting uh, roller coaster trajectory in, in Mary's life with her relationship with Jesus. But I think it's, again, just worth noting here that what Jesus is teaching here is when, when his mother and brothers are looking for him to try and kind of pull him away from the crowds, to pull him back from what he's doing, that... Um, instead, Jesus looks around at those who are being faithful to him and says, "These are my, this is my mother and brother and sister, right? And, uh, you know, I think we see this today a lot, um, unfortunately, right? Of course, it's always better if families are united in the faith, but um, we see this, unfortunately, a lot today with a lot of families, um, and it's even uh, in my own family, that... You, you look, you know, at the family tree and uh, oftentimes there's someone who's gone a completely different direction as far as the terms of the faith goes. And it, it normally causes some level of division, right? And uh, some also, you know, anxiety and, and trying to deal with that uh, division. Um, but especially today in like today's culture where if... Um, someone kind of goes the way of the world versus the way of the church, those are two very different directions, right? I think maybe in a previous time um, in more recent American history, that wasn't so true, right? And families were probably able to stay a little bit more united, even if 
Some people were in church and some people weren't. But today, uh, to go the way of the world is going a very different direction than the way of the faith, right? And so that tends to cause more division. But um, the the good news here, let me put it this way so it's not so depressing. The good news is that the household of faith is a real household, right? And it's a good household, right? And I'm not saying that um, it'll make up for the the family relationships that are um, more difficult or, or divided with um, in the biological kind of family. But um, there is a truth that, as, as Jesus says here, that we do have real mothers and brothers and sisters and fathers in the faith, right? And that's a beautiful thing, right? So um, at, for like a positive example, like imagine a young man who doesn't have... Um, because his biological family is divided, a young man who doesn't have good influences in his life, right? But if he it joins the household of faith, he gets not only, you know, say a good influence, one father, but he gets lots of fathers in the faith, right? Lots of older men to guide him and to help him along. So um, that's something to think about. All right. So that brings us to chapter four, uh, kind of wrapping up chapter three there. And um, chapter four is a bit of a uh, transition here in the book of Mark. We go from Jesus having been traveling around, healing and preaching, and a lot of what's happened so far in Mark has been about Jesus and the crowds, right? Well, now it's still about Jesus and the crowds, but here we get a little bit more in-depth with his preaching, right? We get more record of his actual preaching. And um, we're going to get a series of parables here. Um, all of basically all of chapter four, except for the last um, section, the last couple paragraphs, are a series of Jesus preaching and and teaching. So um, it starts with the parable of the sower, which the parable of the sower, um, we get the parable twice basically because we get the parable once, and then we get the this little middle section on the purpose of parables. When he talks to the disciples, which um, I think is absolutely fascinating, and then we get Jesus explaining the parable of the sower to the disciples. All right, so um, this is a bit of a longer section, but uh, let's go ahead and just start reading. I'll read. Um, let's see. I'll, I'll start with one and two. And again, he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat. And sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching. And then it goes on to to the parable of the sower. Okay, so I, um, as much as we want to keep moving, I don't want to skip over anything. And I, I think the fact that Luke, that Mark, excuse me, not Luke, includes these two verses here is, is notable. Because um, notice how much, I mean, it's only two verses, but still notice kind of how much detail he puts in here. He began to teach by the sea. Great multitude was gathered into him. So they got into a boat and sat in it on the sea and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea, right? Like he didn't have to include that, right? That the the multitude was on the land facing the sea. He probably would have figured that out. Um, But he includes all these details about the sea. And why does he include these details about the sea? 
Um, it, it goes along with a major theme throughout Scripture, which more broadly we could just say the water theme, right? But this idea of boats in the sea is even a, another theme um, within the kind of water theme of, of Scripture, right? And what's the first major sto- story with the boat in the water in the Bible? Noah's Ark, right? Um, Noah's Ark, huge story, right? Uh, that we have this miraculous um, salvation by a boat in the sea, right? In the sea of the world. Um, and then what's already happened in Mark, right? Um, Jesus has called who to be his disciples, many of whom are this? Fishermen, right? He's already called a bunch of fishermen. He's gone out to the boats, right? His ministry so far has centered in Galilee, uh, specifically by the Capernaum Sea, right? And um, he's gone out and he's called these fishermen uh, to be his disciples. And then at the end of this chapter, the thing that's not a parable in this chapter is the calming of the sea when he's out on a boat with the disciples and he and he rebukes the wind and the waves. Okay. Um, you can see this theme throughout scripture and often what we see here, uh, the image, if you take all those things, is that the boat is the place of salvation. The boat is the place where Jesus is, right? Um, also Jonah and the well, right? Um, the boat is the place of safety, and the sea is the place of torment. And um, in Jonah's case, right, in Noah's case, the, the ark is the, the salvation of the world, right, in, in this case, of, of who's going to remain in the world. In Jonah's case, Jonah and his punishment is not allowed in the place of safety, right? He has to bear the wrath, and so he's thrown off the boat. Um, here, uh, Jesus is the perfect fisherman and the perfect boat attendant, right? And he's perfectly at calm in the sea, and we'll see this later on in the in the calming of the in the storm, um, where Jesus is, and and we see this later on in the Gospels too, right? Where he's the perfect fisherman, he's able to to allow the great catch of fish, and um, Jesus, in a sense, like he belongs on a boat, right? And this is what he does here: is he goes out and preaches on the boat. Right, he sets foot out of the boat, goes out to sea, and then he and he preaches um, to the people on the land. And uh, this is also um, a theme that's been picked up oftentimes in church history. Right, so uh, for instance, I'll give a couple different examples. Um, one is in the term that we use for a sanctuary. So when we uh, talk about a church building, right? We have the narthex, which is where people enter the building, right? And we have the chancel, which is where um, the altar is. Does anyone know what the main part of the sanctuary is called? Nave. Nave means boat, right? So this is the boat. This is the place of safety. And uh, Luther picks this up in to the um, in the in the rite of baptism. Uh, there's this in Luther's rite of baptism. This is a specifically Lutheran tradition. Uh, there's this prayer called the flood prayer. And in the flood prayer uh, that Luther writes and adds to the rite of baptism, um, you can actually read it in the hymnal. He uh, has this phrase in there that the person being baptized would be kept safe in the holy ark of the Christian church. 
right? So this is the idea is that the church becomes this, this boat, right? And um, yeah, this is on page 268. And he goes through all these water stories, why it's called the flood prayer, um, right? So he talks about um, how God condemned the world by the unbelieving world through the flood, but preserved Noah and his family, how he drowned hard-hearted Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, but let his people Israel through uh, water on the dry ground, um, how the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan foreshadowed baptism, uh, right? And then um, if you go down there on page 269, about halfway through this prayer, uh, they the prayer says that grant that he slash she the slash they, uh, whatever their preferred pronouns are, just kidding, that's a joke, um, be kept safe and secure in the holy ark of the Christian church. And uh, being separated from the multitude of unbelievers uh, and serving your name at all times with fervent spirit and joyful hope. All right, so this is, um, a, again, a very baptismal, very a water-based theme throughout Scripture that there's um, water, which water is both at the same time life-giving is also treacherous, but then there's a boat or a, a place of dry dryness and safety that's floating on it, right? So um, I think it's, again, it's just two verses here, but you can see all of that there, right, that Jesus gets on the boat to preach, Okay. Um, it's also practical, by the way, because um, the the crowds have been pushing and put, if you read through the um, first three chapters of Mark, uh, just kind of speed read through the first chapters of Mark, three chapters of Mark, what we've seen so far over and over again is the crowds won't leave him alone, right? And so this is kind of a practical way for him to be able to separate himself from the crowds but still preach to them, right? So um, it is also practical in that way. But I think it's also definitely theological. Okay. So then verses 3 through 8. Uh, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up and it, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, he... Actually, I'm going to stop there. We'll stop at verse 8, because um, I think verse 9 really goes with the next section. Okay, um, the first thing we, we got to notice here is Jesus says, listen, Right? And rightfully so, um, in my translation, the NKJV here, there's a exclamation point. I don't know if that's true in yours. Um, and it should be an exclamation point because it's a very different word than is normally used in the New Testament. So Jesus often, very often, and I, I think it's still an important word, will say what a word that's normally translated as behold Right, so you see this all the time in Scripture. Right, behold, um, and behold, an angel of the Lord appeared. Right, behold this, behold that, um, and that that word, I mean, it means pay attention. You know, look, look up, see what's going on here. But this is actually a different word than uh, that word behold, and this is uh, very clearly the command to listen. 
right, to hear. This is actually what we had in the transfiguration today, right? Um, hear him, right? Listen to him. And now Jesus tells the crowd, listen to me, right? Um, it's, it's not, uh, behold is much nicer than this, right? So he's, um, and what one of the themes of Mark that we've seen so far, right, is that Jesus has authority, right? And it's distinct, his authority is distinguished from power, right? His, not, his authority is not um, forcing people to do things by strength, but his authority is from above. And when, when he commands something like this, when he says, hey, listen to me, the people do it, right? Um, because he has authority inherently, right? He's not twisting their arm. He, uh, he commands this and they, and they hear and they obey. Okay, so that's uh, worth it. Because, uh, so he says, listen, a sower went out to sow. And uh, then KJV actually, to try and make this point, it says, listen, behold, right? Listen, behold, a sower. It's actually just one word, but um, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. Okay, now um, I got two thoughts, two general thoughts on the sower of the seed. And it's it's one of my favorite passages, really, in Scripture. Um, ever since I kind of got involved in missions and in church planting and things like that, uh, the Sower of the Seed is the mission festival text. And I've preached at mission festivals before and held mission festivals before. and um, this, So I've kind of studied this passage. But the, uh, the thing that I always kind of go back and forth on is... To think of um, so the, the there's two ways to think of it, right? So the sower goes out to sow, and and he it seems that he scatters the seed, right? Because he it gets thrown, and if you've ever seen a picture or an image of this, right? It's the idea is the guy's kind of throwing seed out everywhere, right? And it, he must be because it's landing in all four sorts of places, four different kinds of places, right? And so th- this idea of scattering is interesting. And the two ways that I kind of go back and forth on, and I don't know if there's a right answer, is to think of scattering as either not normal or abnormal or normal. Okay, and let me describe what I mean by this. So if um, it's not normal, right, that scattering happens. So this is, um, I think this is the more common teaching, is that this is a not normal thing, right? Because if you've ever planted a garden, you've probably um, been very specific about how many seeds you put in the hole and where you put them, right? Um, and you want the tomatoes to grow here and here and here, you know, three feet apart, right? You know, you get the spacing on, on where the seeds are supposed to, like what the spacing is supposed to be. And... Um, you know, I've, I've heard, my understanding is that farmer, farmers now, even the tractors that, that do the sowing have like GPS and, and stuff where it's coordinated exactly where all the seeds go. And so the idea of just throwing seed out there is, is kind of not normal, right? And the phrase that's often used in connection with this is that this is kind of the reckless approach, right? Um, that, and of course, we're going to come to the understanding here later that this is what's being sown is the word and the sower is the evangelist and that specifically in this uh, 
first and foremost, the evangelist Jesus, right, who sows his word into the world, and that Jesus is reckless with his grace, right? He throws it even into places that don't look like they're going to produce. Um, so that's the not normal approach. And I think um, that's fine. It shows the nature of God's grace. So I think the, f- the focus here would be grace, right? Because what is, what is grace? The definition of grace is undeserved favor, right? And so God, even though it's undeserved, has favor on the rocky ground, right? He gives his word even to the rocky ground. So uh, the kind of reckless grace idea, I think, is there. Now, the other way to think about this, which I think is also um, fair, and and maybe even I, I, in recent years I've, I've kind of leaned more towards this, is that scattering is actually normal because there are times you do scatter seed. Right when you're sowing grass, right, <laughs> with the 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 um, one of those you know spreaders, right? It's just everywhere, right? And um, I almost think that, and you know, I we don't we don't know exactly what farming practices were or what kind of seed Jesus has in mind when he's you know you can you can go down a rabbit hole with this, and um, that it brings up something I want to say in a minute, but. The normal idea is that scattering is normal, and what that would show is uh, kind of again think of grass seed. Is this is that um, while you don't know exactly where it's going to end up sprouting, and while you recognize that it's not going to sprout everywhere, you throw it out anyway. Because in general, the more you throw out, the better, right? The more you throw out, the more likely you are to have grass in more places, right? And it, and with that idea, it will you you kind of have the idea already that it's going to spread, right? Um, so, uh, I I think that both of those ideas are good, right? Um, so with here you have the the idea of grace. With here you have the 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 normal idea would be more of the idea of like um, the growing or the expanding kingdom, right? That you want the kingdom to grow, and so you're you're putting it out wherever you can, right? It's like blast marketing. You're you're putting it out as many places as you can. And the other thing with the normal approach, and maybe the reason I I tend to lean this towards this more. Um, and you could also kind of say this is intuitive versus not intuitive, right? But the, the reason I tend more towards the thinking that the normal this is the normal way and that this is intuitive for, for Christ to spread his kingdom this way is because you don't know, and if you, if you take the analogy just a little bit further, you don't know where things will actually spring up. Right, because sometimes if you've ever sown grass before or um, something like that, or if you've even just kind of walked around, like um, think about if you're walking along the sidewalk, what grows up into all the little cracks, right? Grass and weeds, and you know, weed weed is just a term for an unwanted plant. Um, 
and you know that's totally subjective but um sometimes even if it's thrown onto rock things will sprout right and so um part of what jesus is teaching in this parable i think is that it sows everywhere because it might sprout in an unlikely unlikely spot right you might think that it's rocky soil right but that one spot where that seed lands maybe it's not actually rocky soil right and so it's and it it it, it also shows the nature there of um salvation and damnation and i you know there's this whole debate within american christianity specifically it's the classic american christian debate on how salvation works right because you have the kind of free will side that says salvation and damnation are both up to free will like you have to choose jesus to be saved and if you um don't choose jesus you're choosing to be damned right and on the other side you have the kind of calvinist bound will side that says um everything's totally up to god's sovereignty right god decides who's saved and who's unsaved it's totally up to his predestined will and lutherans are in this no man's land in the middle that says it's a paradox and that salvation is because of god's work alone but damnation is because of man's work alone and that doesn't make any sense but that's what the bible says right but i think this parable um it does actually in a sense show that right because where does the seed come from the seed is the word of god right and if the word of god takes root into someone right whose fault is that that's god's because it's his word it's his seed his seed was fertile right but if it doesn't take root into someone whose fault is that it's the soils right the soil is it's the soil's fault when you read the parable right it's because it was rocky soil it's because the sun burnt the soil it's because the birds snatched snatched up the seed um right out of the soil um it's never the seed's fault right but it is the seed's fault when it works so um maybe that's not a perfect analogy analogies always fall apart but i mean it's an analogy jesus kind of uses here so i you know i think it's pretty good but um all right uh the the other kind of general thought be, and and we'll just do general stuff here and then we'll get into specifics with the um when jesus gets into specifics the other general thought here about the parable of the sower is that um it also has this kind of narrow wide path idea in it right because if you just take the plain numbers you get 75% failure right and 25% success and i always bring this up because uh when we think about evangelism and we think about missions and we think about um you know the church growing and and, and whatnot it and missions and uh witnessing is the other term i was thinking of um it's very easy to get depressed right because you go out you spread the word you invite people to church you know you do the work of witnessing and oftentimes very very often it is not successful right um people don't respond they don't come they don't show up they maybe they come but they don't come back right uh and and just from my experience i can tell you that's generally very true right like of all the evangelistic efforts i've ever taken part in um the majority uh don't like bear fruit right 
And if you talk to a good person to talk to about this would be a door-to-door salesman, especially today. Right? There are still door-to-door salesmen. Um, I, you you might not get many at your door, but they do still exist, especially with like things like um, solar uh, panels, like that's a big thing, or like security systems, things like that. And you can get into sales if you want to, and, and you can actually make a career out of it still, even though people are much more closed off. Um, but they'll tell you right off the bat, get used to being told no. <laughs> because you're not looking for that, um, the 100 people who tell you no, you're looking for the one person who tells you yes, right? And um, that's sometimes how it works, is that, uh, or very often how it works is that the, the seed does not bear fruit. Like you sow and, and it's rocky soil. And the path is uh, wide and many will take it to the way of destruction, but the path that leads to eternal life is narrow. And so um, the hopeful side of that is that 25%, and I, you know, I, don't, I don't think Jesus here is teaching that it's exactly 75%, 25%, but the hope here is that there is a promise implicit here that there is good soil out there, right? There's a promise that if you sow the seed, it will bear fruit. And he even says, look, when it bears fruit, it can even bear more than you would ever expect, right? 30, 60, 100 fold, right? So um, the hopefulness here is that you sow the seed and yes, you're gonna get told no a lot, but yes, there will also be people who respond. Right, so don't stop sowing. Okay. Any questions on that so far? Thoughts? The message that came out is for, for you as an individual, don't necessarily assume you're fertile ground. Right? Some humility that you've got to you've yeah. got to be open and not just think that you're you're good. Because everybody likes to say, well, yeah, I'm the fertile ground. You, you, yeah. Other people are the right, right. Yeah, that's a good point. That's kind of I was getting about it a little bit in the sermon today. Is like don't get too comfortable with Jesus, right? Like, or um, you just assume that you're you're all good with him, right? And because notice uh, this getting into the details a little bit, but there are sometimes it's sown and it does spring up right away, right? But then it gets it gets burnt out, and um, yeah, I'll I'll never forget like that when I first got the beautiful savior, um, there was a, you know, as a church revitalization, there were like 20 people there on Sunday, no, no children. And we had this big family visit and, um, they seemed great. Like I was just so excited that this, this family was visiting and, um, they were like, we used to be Baptist, but we're looking for a more liturgical church, but we're like conservative Christians. And I was like, welcome home and started catechesis. But then I won't go into all the dirty details, but um, things started to go kind of weird. And um, this uh, basically in short, um, the guy had a lot of very specific things he was looking for in a church that, uh, theologically, that didn't quite align. And I don't, it was, it was kind of one of those situations where it's like, well, you're looking for a church that doesn't exist, but 
Um, that's kind of beside the point. But anyway, they ended up going through catechesis, but then not joining. And I was like really depressed. Um, and I, I was talking to a mentor of mine and about it. And he was like, look, some roots don't go deep. Sometimes it springs up and then it gets choked out. Like he referenced this verse uh, about this. And I was like, dang, <laughs> like, that's right. That's exactly what happened. Um, and so it's actually incredibly practical, right? These, uh, the, the situations, the specific situations that, that Christ gives here um, as far as, as things. But that's a very good point is that sometimes something can seem really good, even in your own life, right? It can seem like this is all good, but we need to be careful that the roots actually go deep, right? Um, all right. So uh, this is, I love this next part. Okay, so 9 through 13. And he said to them, he who has ears, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parable. And he said to them, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Okay, so a couple different points we want to make here. One is that, I think this is very important, the teaching of Jesus takes faith to receive. Okay, um, the, the 12 disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are on the outside, all things come in parables. And then he quotes uh, this passage from, let's see here, uh, Isaiah. Yeah, Isaiah. Actually, it's in multiple of the prophets. It's in Isaiah 6, Jeremiah 5, and Ezekiel 12. That seeing they may see and not understand, uh, or not perceive, hearing they may hear and not understand. Okay, it takes faith to receive the par- to receive the teaching of Jesus. That if someone does not have faith, they will not understand what the Bible says. Okay, and I I think this is very important because we we focus a lot I think as Lutherans on the fact that the pre the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ creates faith, right? Which it does, right? When the good news is preached. The Holy Spirit uses that to create faith. But to continue to grow in the knowledge of the scriptures from that, right, it is also, and it's similar to um, baptism in this way, that the Bible must be received in faith, right? So, So baptism is like this, right, where baptism creates faith, but it's also received in faith. It's kind of a paradox. Um, but the teaching of scripture is the same way, right, that Scripture is meant for the Christian, right? Certainly the word in general, and specifically when when Paul talks about this, when Jesus talks about this, the good news, the message of salvation through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, that good news, that gospel is meant for the whole world to hear, right? 
Um, and that's the word that we're talking about being sown here. But um, the Bible is not just the gospel, right? The, the Bible contains a lot more than just that good news message, right? The, the Bible contains all the teachings of Jesus, the, the whole, what we call often the whole counsel of God, right? So if you read the book of Proverbs, for instance, um, it's a father talking to his son about like how to find a woman to marry and how to manage your finances, right? Um, now, it's, it doesn't go into like insane levels of detail about those things, but there is wisdom there. Um, or if we read um, you know, God's statutes throughout the Old Testament, there's wisdom there and about how God um, thinks society should function and how God thinks people should kind of organize their lives. There's a lot in the counsel of God, right? There's a lot in scripture, right? If, if, if all God wanted us to know was that uh, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you know, he could have made this whole thing a lot shorter, right? Could have been one book, one chapter, right? Um, here's the law of God. You don't live up to it. God sent his son Jesus to die for you. Now try and be a better person, right? Like that, he's going to come again one day. Like he could have made it a lot shorter, right? But he didn't. He gave us his whole word. And um, Jesus teaches a lot. He preaches a lot. And when he preaches, as way tells his disciples, is that um, to you who are in the kingdom of God, it's been given to know this these mysteries, right? And when the Bible uses the term mystery, by the way, um, it's important to realize that the word mystery in, in New Testament Greek is uh, a term that doesn't mean what we think of like a, if we think of like a mystery novel where it's like you don't know the ending, you're like, it's like a surprise, right? It's something unknown. That's not the, the way the word is used. The word is, is generally used as something that is revealed, right? So it's it's the mystery solved is how I always describe it, right? It's the, the mystery that's been revealed. And who's it been revealed to? It's been revealed to the saints, right? To those who have faith. And um, this is something that's a theme over and over again in the prophets is that there will be many who see, right? Who see the prophets, who see Jesus, but they don't perceive what they're saying. They hear with their ears, like they hear the words, but it doesn't actually get into the heart, right? They don't understand, right? And um, this, I, so there's, there's a lot to say about this. And the reason I'm, I'm going on and on about it is... Um, because it has a lot of practical implications for, I think, the way that we study the scriptures and the way that um, we even talk to outsiders of the faith as well, right? So first of all, the way we study the scriptures, I, for the most part, this, this may or may not surprise you, I don't know, I don't read commentaries for the most part. I had to read them and use them to write papers in seminary, and I kind of always dreaded it um, because commentaries like rarely provide any insight onto the meaning of the text, right? And the reason that commentaries don't provide insight on the meaning of the text, maybe there, there are some good, there are some good commentaries out there. I, the ones I own are good. Otherwise, I got rid of all the ones I don't like. Um, I give them to Vicar um, so he can learn to not like them like I I do, but um, no, I mean, commentaries are this practice in kind of modern academia of using 
basically like the scientific method, I guess you could say, to analyze the text, right? It's, so it's like this very grammarian method where it's like, okay, we analyze the grammar of the the what's what's in the text, and we tell you what we parse out all the verbs, and then um, we do all this. There, there's tons of different ways commentaries are written, um, but we do all this literary analysis and all this different study of, um, you know, looking at the comparing it to like ancient manuscripts that use the same words and whatnot. And you read it all, and at the end of the day, you're like, okay, but like, what does that mean to my life, right? Like, it it doesn't change anything. Um, all you did is like tell me a lot about some word, and maybe it provides like this much little bit of insight into it, but it it it's just this academic approach to the text that really doesn't help your faith at all, right? And if um, you go back into church history, it's very interesting. You can buy commentaries, quote-unquote commentaries, from early church fathers. Um, but it, the first, quote-unquote, commentaries really weren't written until the Middle Ages when you had the institution of um, kind of scholastic thought, right, of at what would be the predecessor to modern academia. And do you know what early church father commentaries are? They're sermons, right? If you go in and read Augustine's commentaries or... Um, uh, Irenaeus's commentaries, they're sermons. And I always get so much more out of reading sermons than I do out of reading commentaries. And the reason for that is because what are sermons doing? They're preaching the text in faith, in the context of faith, right? They're preaching to Christians and they're talking about what the text means to Christians, right? And um, we have this problem in biblical interpretation of, uh, so biblical interpretation, the fancy word for this is hermeneutics. And in hermeneutics, um, there's this problem in kind of liberal academia where you have, uh, for instance, all these different um, kind of uh, what are called like postmodern interpretations of the text. So you'll have like the feminist interpretation of the text, or you'll have the LGBT interpretation of the text, or you'll have the uh, you know cisgender interpretation of the text, or you'll have the uh, um, you know white interpretation of the text, or whatever the case may be. And uh, I say that's all malarkey, but not because. Um, it's not all malarkey because it's kind of like not real or something. I think those things actually exist in a sense, right? Like I expect a feminist to read the scriptures like a feminist, if that makes sense, right? I expect um, someone who's um, LGBTQ+, whatever, to read the scriptures like that. I expect them to read anything like that because that's their lens through which they view life, right? So what is the correct interpretation of the text? And I don't think the correct interpretation of the text is some sort of like um, objective, like zoomed out view, right? Um, 
because if that was true, you know, then artificial intelligence could correctly interpret the Bible. The correct interpretation of the text, right, is not anything that it has to do with um, anyone's kind of outward characteristics. The correct interpretation of the text is a Christian interpretation of the text, right? The Bible fits together in its own way, and it fits together by faith. This is what Jesus says. He says, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to those who are on the outside, all things come in parables so that seeing they may see and not perceive and hearing they may hear and not understand. If you want to understand the Bible, you read it devotionally, right? And it fits together in the way that it fits together devotionally, right? The Bible only fits together one way. And it fits together within itself, right? Irenaeus, uh, early church father, he described this as... Um, the mosaic of scripture. That uh, mosaic is a piece of art that is a bunch of tiny pieces that form together to make one one image, right? And he said, the mosaic of scripture is a picture of Christ. And what heretics do is they mismatch the pieces together and they form it to make uh, a what he says when he's talking about the Gnostics is they make it a picture of a fox, right? This uh, kind of sneaky animal. Um, but it doesn't actually work, right? The, p- the pieces don't match. And so if you want to understand the scriptures, uh, you, you read it like a Christian. You read it devotionally, and it makes a picture of Jesus, right? And that's that's really the only way you understand is in faith, right? And um, so this I think this is very important that we, we don't read the Bible um, with a, this kind of lens of um, either a, like, what I'd call like a very modernist view, which is like to just try and analyze it to death using grammar and science, um, but, and also, or a, a kind of postmodern way in which um, we read it with sub, totally subjective lenses but that we read it in faith, right? Uh, we and, and like there's a way to do this, right? We should pray. Like before I study scripture, I don't mean to sound like overly pious here, but like before I sit down to study scripture or, you know, outline a sermon or outline a Bible study, I, I pray that the Holy Spirit would guide me, right? And, and that's not, again, to sound like overly pious, but like I think that's really the way it works, Right? And you heard, you heard what Peter said um, today. Actually, there's a great verse. He says, no prophecy is of anyone's own private interpretation, but men were carried along by the Holy Spirit when they wrote it down. Right? Inspiration itself is a work of the Holy Spirit, and so is interpretation. Okay? So, all right, get off my soapbox. The second reason that that is an important concept um, is also how we talk to, to outsiders. We should not expect outsiders, um, I think I'm out of time, to, uh, okay, we'll have to do this next time. Next time I'm talking about apologetics, um, so you can be excited about that, and then we'll finish up the sower of the seed. So any final questions or comments? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word, and we pray that you would enlighten us as we study it, help us to receive it in faith. Uh, We pray that you would also strengthen us uh, to sow your seed, to spread the message of good news uh, to all people. 
and that you would use that message and send your Holy Spirit that people might come to faith and uh, receive the salvation of their souls. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.